Hey everyone, and welcome back to Creative Consumption. I'm Daniel Schwartzberg, host of the show. Thank you all for tuning in, and if you're new, welcome to the show. I, I appreciate you checking it out. I hope everyone had a happy Labor Day. I also want to start by sending good thoughts to anyone who was directly or indirectly affected by Hurricane Ida. It, uh, it feels like it's been a tumultuous past few weeks, and that's for a lot of reasons. I know the recent storms and weather have played a big role in that, so I hope everyone is, is staying safe and doing okay. So in today's interview, I had the opportunity to speak with Rebecca Murillo. Rebecca is an actor, singer, dancer, composer, writer, choreographer, director. That's really just scratching the surface. She's performed in New York City on legendary stages like the Green Room 42 and Feinstein's 54 Below, and she's even traveled internationally to perform in a Tokyo production of West Side Story. Rebecca also received acclaim for her original musical, Not Quite Extinct, and in her most recent project, she was a member of the writing and composing team for the new musical, Breathe. For some brief context and background on the show, since we talk about Rebecca's writing and collaborative process during the interview, Breathe is a musical conceived and created by Jody Pico and Timothy Allen McDonald. It was written during the time of the pandemic when, when most parts of the country were either in lockdown or in very socially isolated situations, so the entire show was actually written remotely and then captured on video and distributed online. The cast album is available now from Broadway Records. Uh, the libretto and score are available to read and license from Musical Theatre International. And you can also watch clips of songs from the original productions. All of those links will be in the description and show notes. So with all her credits, multi-hyphenate really doesn't seem to do Rebecca justice. And because of that, the ideas of balancing passion with productivity and with creativity seemed very fertile ground for discussion. So picking Rebecca's brain about those ideas was something I was really, really excited to do. So with that, here is my interview with Rebecca Murillo. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Rebecca, first thing I always like to start with, first right off the bat, when you're meeting somebody for the first time, what title or titles do you like to lead with? That is a great question that I'm still trying to figure out because I feel very blessed that I've gotten to do the work I have gotten to do, but it's all very new to me. So it's very, it's almost like I have to wear different hats and it's depending on what room I'm in and what I'm doing. Cause sometimes I'm in the room as an associate. So um, I'm there working on a, someone else's new work. So I'm like, okay, this is my skill set for this room. And then it will be brought up that I also write music. And I'm like, oh, that is a different hat. Let me put that on. So I think I'm still trying to figure out how I'm defining myself. And it's very odd because as I do more things, I get questions like, oh, so you're done performing. And I'm like, no, I think I'm just now trying to figure out what is my balance, my personal balance and how I am going to carry myself and introduce myself in the professional world as I keep working in it, hopefully. (laughs) That is not a doubt. But I'm curious, like you talk about switching hats and going back and forth. Is that something that you feel like happens fluidly? Do you feel like you have to like deliberately make that decision to be like, okay, now I am doing X. Now I'm going from writer to composer or other things or even just uh, performer to choreographer or something? Do you have to 
think of them as two different spaces or do things kind of seem to mesh together when you're doing them? I feel like things mesh together. I think it's when I'm talking about something then or who, if I'm directing a conversation about something towards someone, then I start have to doing a little like switching of hats and jargon and code switching. But when it's actively like doing the art, I think it bleeds very nicely. And I think that's the reason I've been able to manage so many hats because if I'm not performing and I'm behind the table, let's say like Avita City Center doing choreography work, I now can use my own performer brain to get through or teach in a different way choreography to people who need help or give notes in a way that I know how to receive notes as a dancer and an actor. So it bleeds nicely in that way. And even with writing and composing, I mean, I know as an actor, what is a very strong I want song. I know, I know how beats work and I know how all of that works. So if I'm writing a song in that way, I now have the knowledge to be like, okay, if I were singing this song, if I were performing this song dramatically and not just thinking about it as an earworm or tune, like does, would I be able to do this emotional journey within a two, three minute song. And does it ever, because like you're saying, you do so much and I can imagine why you'd feel like it's challenging to figure out which one to lead with because it sounds like you're passionate about all the things you're doing. Does it ever feel like it's overwhelming, the amount of things that you're doing? Or does it all feel manageable? Is that change day to day? I mean, point blank, it is, it is overwhelming at times. And what's very hard is I... So I graduated 2019 and I had, I mean, college is a lot of multitasking. It's a lot of saying yes to everything and then realizing you have two months of your school year left and trying to finish everything you said yes to. So I had very great practice on how to do that in college. Um, I had very poor mental health at the same time, I will say, but I, I knew how to say yes to everything and do all these projects. And I was very lucky then right out of college to keep continuing to say yes to different types of projects. I was performing in Tokyo and then I was assistant choreographer, been assistant choreographer. And then I was, I would say overloaded and uh, saying yes to everything. And then the pandemic hit and well, I had to stop being a burnout. We were all confined to our homes and I was very lucky to get breathe or have breathe come across my table. So then I was just wearing one hat. I was wearing one writer's hat didn't have to worry about anything else, just in the span of a year, writing and preparing and workshopping and getting this musical ready to be shared with the world. And now as the world is opening up more and more and our industry is starting to come back, I'm kind of redefining like how much of burnout I want. And maybe I don't want to be burned out at all. And maybe... And yes, like there is an element of you should say yes to everything, every opportunity, especially when you're in college and coming out of college is something you can learn from and something to build up the resume. But I think I'm at a point now where I'm realizing that the burnout isn't sustainable and I just need to be more judicial about my time and my mental health and all of that. So I will say it is overwhelming to wear all those hats and I'm trying to teach myself how to make it not overwhelming so it can be sustainable and also not affect my art. Cause there are times where I will be commissioned to write a song and I will send it and I'll be like, I did, I'm not very proud of what I did, but it's what I had in the moment. And I can't judge me being low on creative juice because I'm just overwhelmed. 
I just have to chalk it up to being like, this is the best I could do in that moment. I could probably write a better song if you gave me three months, but that's okay. I had to do, I did what I did and it's there. So I think I'm still learning how to make it not overwhelming. As I've talked with people, mental well-being and mental health is something that comes up, it does come up pretty frequently because I think when either you're doing a lot, right, like you are, where you've got so many different tasks and roles that you're playing, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes back to back, sometimes just out of the blue, right, all these different situations come up. Dealing with that from a literal standpoint, like you said, like just getting the song written is one element, right? It's like just getting the task done, but then there's dealing with the mental burden of the planning for that and the actual sitting down and doing it part, right? It's like all those things that are mental blocks that come in the way of it. And I'd, I'd love to know because everyone has a slightly different way of dealing with it. But is there something that you do or practices or something you've developed that have helped you? My first piece of advice is therapy. Just across the board, everyone needs therapy. Everyone should talk to someone whether something bad has happened or whether nothing has happened. Therapy is great. Um, that's just been a lifelong journey since I was in high school. But I kind of have to detach in in a sense that I have to like physically leave the space and go do something and it says it can be as small as I'm in my apartment in New York have no idea what's going on I'm going to the Natural History Museum that is one another thing is like I'm gonna go to the beach because I just need to not be in the space that I call my creative space and then others are this um two-week road trip I just took to Oregon where I am like I'm shutting my brain off um I am going to enjoy the mountains. I'm going to enjoy the trees. I'm not going to think about writing. I'm not going to think about dancing. I'm not going to think about anything. It's, it's funny that you bring up content stuff because it, I feel like just because of the nature of like my brain and how I enjoy music and how I enjoy entertainment and art, uh, whether that is television or whether that's theater, I feel like my creative brain still spins. <laughs> like there are sometimes I'll be watching a movie and I'm like, oh, I'm ruining this movie for myself because I'm just enjoying the score like too hard. Like I'm thinking of it as a orchestrator, composer, and I'm not thinking of it on like a, I'm watching a movie and like blocking out the rest of the world kind of way. <laughs> so yeah, I would say an element of just kind of having to step away from any creative process. But even as I say that, I was on this road trip and I was taking notes and writing lyrics for another project. So I don't know how much I can actually turn that brain off. What I've heard from a lot of people and I sometimes find is that that idea of a continuum of as soon as we step away from something and we feel like we've completely separated ourselves, that's the moment when inspiration will sometimes strike because we're not, right? I mean, it's the classic like when you're not looking for it, it falls in your lap, right? It's like that's when you think of the great idea or you think of some nice song lyrics or whatever it is, right? So that definitely jibes with what I've heard from a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, not to out myself, but I've literally been drunk at a bar and it hits and I literally have to take my iPhone into a bathroom and be like, okay, here are the lyrics. Here's the song. We'll, we'll check in with this in the morning and then go back to my evening because maybe that's like the reverse psychology of it when you tell yourself, I'm done. I'm turning this off. And then your brain is like, okay, well, now that everything's off, let me create this thing that you now have to think about. <laughs> Yeah, I totally hear that. Well, to jump back a little bit, because with so many things you're doing, right, I can imagine that there must be a lot of people or a lot of something that inspired you to do all of that. So what was it when you were growing up, things you were watching, things you were intaking, people you were watching that inspired you to start on the path of getting to where you are now? The first thing that comes to mind performing, I was four years old and my parents took me to see the national tour of The Lion King. And I... 
it's like one of my earliest memories. I remember sitting at the back of the Pantages Theater and watching young Nala and young Simba sing, I just can't wait to be king. And something just like hit. I was like, I want to do that. That looks fun. Like I, I, these, these kids who, well, I'm four. I don't know how old they are. They're probably like six years my senior, but I'm sitting there being like, that looks entertaining and that looks fun. And I think the trajectory was that I told my parents this and then my school had auditions for a play and I got in and then I continued to do plays until I was in a performing arts high school suddenly. And then I went to college for musical theater. So yeah, I was four years old watching The Lion King, Julie Taylor's Lion King. And I thought this is, this seems fascinating. And it, I didn't even know performing was a job. For some reason, like watching these people perform at the Pantages didn't register to me that they were being paid to like do this job. And I was in the fourth grade and I'd been doing musicals and plays. And my drama teacher had said something about Broadway and New York and like musical theater. And I was like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And she was like, there's a whole theater district. The, the musicals that you're seeing on tour, they start out in this big theater district where like people work for a living and like dance and sing and do all the good stuff as a job. And in the fourth grade, I was like, I'm moving to New York. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know. Like I chose my career path at that point. Cause before I was like, oh, I'll do musical theater on the side and then I'll be like a chef or I'll do musical theater on the side. Now, I don't know. I don't know what else I wanted to be. But once I knew it was like a career path that people did uh, in the fourth grade, I was like, I'm going to New York and I'm going to do this thing. So you were set really early on with that? Really early on. <laughs> and then how about the writing and the composing, all of that stuff, was that kind of, a subcategory under kind of the bigger category of musical theater and performing, or were those individual passions that eventually found their way into the world of theater? Those are newer things. The writing ones in particular is very new. I had a chat with a mentor of mine who saw me throughout my entire, like when I was in high school at my performing arts high school. And she was like, I never heard from you any, any want of composing. And I, I, genuinely was like, I would never have thought that would have been me. Never in a million years could I have seen that being me. And then I went to graduate from Pace University. But while I was there, there was a musical theater writing class. And when I got to college, I realized this thing about me that I just love learning. Um, I don't, well, I am a bit of a perfectionist, but I, I just love learning. And I like whether I'm perfect at it or not, I just want to know many things about many facets, especially of the theater industry itself. So I took the first semester of this writing class and I was not, I just fell in love with it. And I realized I had stories I wanted to tell. When it came to the second semester of that class, I was one of the only women. I was the only person of color. And I had a mentor, um, Sam Wilmot, a friend mentor of Sam Wilmot, who I had mentioned this to. And he was like, that's the industry. That is going to be what you're going to be facing if you continue being a composer, that's just like what it is. There's not that much representation. And so there was a part of me that also wanted to change what musical theater looked like and what the writers of musical theater look like. And I decided as long if I have something to say, I, I, there's no harm in trying to write it and put it out in the world and see what happens. So the writing thing was, when did I take that class now? Like four, maybe going on five years ago. So it's been... That one's been a newer part of my life. As for like the directing and choreography, 
I have been a dancer, so I know that side of it. The directing was interesting because I always thought it was a new thing. A professor of mine was like, you're a director. You have a director's brain. And I'd never directed anything in my life. And I was like, I don't know what you mean. But I think in the way that she would see me stage my scene studies and perform my songs in my vocal classes, she saw something that was, I guess, the way I... I, I still to this day do not know, but there was something, I guess, in that in those performances and in those choices I was making that screamed director brain. So she kept telling me I had this director brain. I, I had no idea what she was talking about. And then I was given the position of assistant director, I assume by this professor. And just a lot of things clicked. I had tried to be somewhere down this like long journey. I had at one point thought I didn't want to perform anymore um, and want to be a dramaturg. And I'd done like a dramaturgy internship at Santa Cruz Shakespeare. And I knew by week two, I was, did not want to, I was too far removed from the process, too far removed from the stage. But what I found in directing was a lot of the people I looked up to and got to work with, thankfully, like melded those two jobs together. So they were directors, but they were bringing in like dramaturgy work and they were bringing in these layers of other facets of the theater world to make brilliant performances. So I kind of was into that idea. I then started to assistant direct with productions at my school and and then it moved to Off-Broadway and it's it's been a crazy thing. But that one's funny because I can think back to times in high school when I was in a show and I was thinking if I had this, if I was directing this production, this is what I'd do. Like I remember we did Titanic the musical and already very hard because if you can't build the boat, how do you do Titanic the musical? And it's, it's a feat. We did a decent job, but I remember being, I was in the ensemble for that show and I remember being in the back and like arms crossed. And I was like, if I had the reins, I would do this, this, and this, and this, this, and this. And I think back to that now and I was like, yeah, I had, I had vision and I just needed someone to tell me that you can do something with that. Yeah, no, I think that those mentors are always vital. Yeah. I know earlier you were saying that because of being a performer, sometimes watching something or being a musician, watching something, it's hard to not be thinking about those elements of performing or music. When you started pursuing composing and pursuing writing in a more focused way, right? In those, I maybe had already been thoughts, but in a more focused way, did that change the way you saw the things that you were watching or reading or listening to? I think so. I've always been such a music nerd to the point where, like, I remember, <laughs> which movie was it? The last Jedi trailer came out and I was like, this, I remember listening to the orchestration, wasn't even paying attention to what was happening in the trailer. And I was like, this is a mixed orchestration of the Jedi theme and Ray's theme. And it's fantastic. And all this stuff, nobody knows what I'm talking about. Nobody in my family is, they're like, it's the new Star Wars movie. I don't know what you're talking about. But I think because I made that decision even earlier than composing, just to dive into music more, we had taken music theory and I had grown up playing piano, was in choir, I'm a pretty great uh, sight reader because of choir. And I just wanted to know if I ever had to conduct, what would that look like? So I would go to teachers and be like, teach me this. And how do you read a score? And so they would hand me scores. So as I decided to dive more into music, which then later became composing, it changed the way I looked at things. There's that example with the Star Wars trailer. I mean, I play games with myself even where I'm watching a movie and I'm like, did Thomas Newman uh, compose this? 
or if I'm listening to a score, I'm like, Hans Zimmer composes. It's the games I play with myself. And I don't know, for me, it connects me a little deeper with, sometimes it's distracting, um, but there are times when I'm sitting there watching it and I just, I mean, it's just like one step deeper into whatever like media is being, or I'm watching or is being shown. I'm also a big Marvel fan, huge, huge Marvel fan, especially Cinematic Universe. And there's a piece of music that gets played when uh, Loki and Thor's mother dies in Thor 2. And it's the same piece of music that gets played when Loki, quote unquote, dies at the end of the same movie. And I mean, who's going to know that? Me being a weirdo. But it, 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 it's one step. It's like one thing deeper into the piece into the emotion of that moment. It for sure has changed the way I consume content, media, specifically movies and TV. And sometimes it's distracting and other times it's almost like a, like a Easter egg that just drops me even deeper into whatever story or emotion is trying to be told. And I think it's very fun. <laughs> to go back to what you're talking about in terms of diving deeper into the media and those kind of things. I think there's there's a couple layers there, right? There is just being able to recognize like you can with themes and breaking down the music in ways that maybe people who are listening more casually or who don't have the background you have, they don't find those same connections. Do you also find yourself drawing inspiration for what you can then create? Is there like a direct line between I recognize this composer, I can see what he's doing here, Maybe I can use that in my work. Do you see that happening as well? Oh, absolutely. If you had asked my writing style, I would say I'm a pop musical theater writer. But I, I, I almost wish I could have the time to then like dive deeper into that, which is to say I'm just a product of everything I've listened to. One of my favorite movies growing up, and I didn't even think about it until recently when I rewatched it, was Spirit, the DreamWorks horse movie, composed by Hans Zimmer. Great movie. Great movie. Fantastic movie. It's one of those things that I, wa I watched on repeat growing up. The Prince of Egypt, another one. These are things that I, as what, I was like in elementary school, I couldn't, I wasn't going to tell you that I would like take these things and like run with them later on in life and make songs. But there are now things where I've written or we've, or me and Robert Kiki for Breathe have orchestrated. And I'm like, oh, I know where that came from. I mean, there are even times more recently, I, I, I try to listen to as much music as I can because, because of all the different stylings. I mean, there are songs that I, I listened to a song from Your Name, a, I believe a Japanese animated movie and I'm currently working on a piece where just the other day I just realized that's where the direct influence was like I could pinpoint me listening to that song never seen the movie but me listening to that song and then what elements I didn't even try to emulate that song but the elements just like came out because of I'd been consuming that song anything I write is a big product of what I've grown up listening to what I'm currently listening to and I think what's nice about that is I can already see personally the growth that I had from like when I was taking the writing class, which is five. My, my career is very, as a writer is very, is very short and hopefully it will be very long, but it, it's very short at the moment. So there's not so much I can like pull off, especially breathe being one of the biggest, the biggest thing I've done and one of the only full lengths I've done. So 
there's not much history to like look back and, and pull at, but I can already tell there, there was a time where my songs all sounded like one thing, but I was also listening to like one type of music at the time. And I can see the growth because I have not even strayed away from that one type of music, but I've decided to like let different influences or listen to different things or find different artists. Cause there are sometimes I look for different artists at, for a project because I'm like, I need a song that sounds a little like this. And I need to go find songs that sound like that. But there are times where I go, I find an artist that I absolutely love. And I'm just personally like into them. And as I'm writing a song, I'm like, I got influenced by their second album. <laughs> I can hear it. But I didn't intend on that. So you mentioned Breathe. We mentioned it at the beginning. I got a chance to watch it. It's really, really lovely. I really enjoyed getting to see all those different kind of vignettes and how they came together. Let's take Breathe as an example, because to me, you're describing all of this sometimes passive influence that's happening on the outside and sometimes you drawing from it. When you're starting out with a creative process like that and throughout it, what does your day look like? Do you have to dive completely in and just, just be doing that? Do you have to balance it in different ways? How did that work process go? I will start out by saying it. I I have nothing to reference it against. So any any other process, I got insight on how other processes would go by my other colleagues saying, "Oh, we've never done. I've never done a process like this, or I've never done this," because I don't have anything to compare it to. But it's one of those odd things where it was a commissioned piece. So already you're being handed what the the story and the idea is. So you have to look at it and then be like, okay, let me, let me song spot. Let me find where the music would happen. And interesting enough, when it was pitched to me by Rob, he already had an idea of how it should start, which is actually the song that still starts out our piece. So he sent that to me. And in reading the piece, I ended up finding the last song. And then we had this interesting conundrum where we had to find what the rest of the story was. Like, how do we get from Rob's first song to my last song? And what is that emotional journey for these two people? When it comes to sitting down and writing it, I had never had to have the discipline of of telling myself, you need to sit down and write this. Because in the past, it had been an assignment. It'd been for a grade. So my so Ryan Scholar was my teacher and he would be like, Your song is due next Friday. And then there I am in my dorm room trying to find something that works by Friday. But I mean, we wrote Breathe in five months. So it was, I want to say four or five months. So it was a lot of what do I have free time? What do I feel like writing right now? Sending it to Rob, Rob sending something back. It was a lot of uh, Zoom calls and then we, wouldn't touch it for a week. And then I would do some work on my own. And then he would do some work. We'd come together and figure out like what the bridge is. So it, for me, it was a lesson on discipline and how I had to sit myself down and be like, you're going to do this. And even in that project, we had times where Rob and I sat down and I was like, I don't have an in. And then we started revising story and finding our way in. I mean, originally, with our piece, um, which is the first piece of Breathe, the, the story wasn't set in Mexico. Jerry wasn't Hispanic. That was all something I wanted to add and find as my way in to the story. And so we had those conversations. And even with that, I would find myself having complete writer's block. 
and being like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what this moment is. And for me, I had a big imposter syndrome throughout the entire process because I was 24. No, I was 23. I just turned 23. I had never written anything other than things that had been performed at pace. I, it was, it was a true zero to a hundred moment that, and when I was given the offer, I had to like sit with myself and be, I can be scared and say no, I can be scared and say yes, and just learn along the way and, and maybe fail. And that will also be a learning process. So it, it was a lot of battling imposter syndrome while trying to like teach myself discipline of, of sitting down and writing and being like, okay, when I wake up from one to five is my writing time and I will be figuring it out. And even when I found the moments of writing block, like I couldn't go on a two week Oregon trip. I had to like sit there and, and, and figure out a way, figure a way out of it. And it's funny. Cause even as we watch the thing, um, the performance, I mean, there are things that I was like, Oh, I could tweak some things. I, I, I totally, if I had another, another, another go around, I would tweak a few things, but it, it's kind of like what I said about when I was commissioned that song and I was like, it is what it is. That's what I had in the moment. I learned from it. And yeah, it was a very odd process because apparently musicals don't go up in a year. So how do you give yourself a break during all of that? Well, if I'm being honest, it's, I mean, I wrote it during a pandemic and I, as I assume I'm not alone, lot had a lot of mental health dips during, especially that summer of 2020. It was, it was very hard. I mean, you're, you're mourning the loss of human life. You're mourning the loss of normalcy for me. And I'm sure a lot of performers, and I feel like we don't talk about it because it feels insensitive, but it's so true. Like you're mourning your career and like the trajectory you were on. I was in a contract and I was set up to have a summer contract. So I had to mourn the fact that I had just lost two jobs back to back and I wasn't going to be performing. And I, I, I lost my sublet. I literally moved from New York to California. I was trying to grapple with the idea of living back at home, a place I hadn't lived full time since I was 18 years old. That's like the honest, hard part that I feel like made writing a musical both incredible because it gave my mind something to work on but it also was hard because I had to constantly put those things aside and be like I have work to do I have a thing I have to do there are people counting on me to write this piece and it was this juggling of being super grateful to be having such a big opportunity like this and then also having to sit and be I'm I'm maybe not okay <laughs> as I'm sure many people weren't and that's the hard truth of it the the emotions the depression all of that good stuff um but I also got obsessed with TikTok I'm not even joking like I my sister had it before the pandemic had hit and I'd always thought it was this Gen Z okay the, here's the thing with labels I don't like them but I use them um but that was this very like Gen Z thing this very like I was just like, this isn't an app for me. This isn't a piece of media for me. And then pandemic hits, there's nothing. You wake up, there's nothing to do. You're trying to keep yourself busy for the first two weeks. There's only so many times you can throw like, oh, we're stuck at home parties. And then all of a sudden you're waking up and it's like Groundhog Day over and over again. And I got obsessed with this app and I would watch it to laugh. I would watch it to see how other people were dealing with the quarantine, I would watch it for, for a mental break because it wasn't 
because at the time I, nobody was everyone was trying to I think everybody on that platform was trying to create something that was a bit of escapism that was trying to make humor of a very heavy situation. And so anytime I needed to not be thinking about what was going on in the world, what was going, what was playing on CNN, what was happening within our own family, like I would go on the app and then my sister and I would just swipe for hours, which is also dangerous because then five hours go by and you're like, I didn't realize I was on the app for so long, but things like that. I mean, I also was started reading Lord of the Rings, but that's not as exciting as, you know, watching TikToks. <laughs> Did you finish the trilogy? I'm still on the Fellowship of the Ring. It's taken me a year, but I'm almost done. So TikTok, that's really, I love that you brought that up because it actually, it has, that one hasn't come up before. Really? Yeah, I know. What You know what? I'm sure some of the people I've talked to have also been on TikTok and enjoyed it, but it does lean into something that I love hearing people's thoughts about, which is this bigger idea of social media. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it and in a good way, sometimes we can lose ourselves in it and it lets us turn our brains off in something. But I think everyone has a different relationship with social media. And it depends on the different kind of social media, if it's TikTok or if it's Instagram or whatever, whatever it is. And it's such a broad term that it encompasses a lot. But I'd love to know from you, first off, what do you think is your relationship with social media? And I guess second, how does that feed into your creativity and your process as a creator? YouTube is always my frame of reference because I remember it being this like new thing. Like my sister and I were kind of not allowed to go on it. So at our grandma's house, we would like sneak onto the computer and go watch YouTube videos. And it was never anything bad. It was like Charlie the Unicorn sequences or whatever else was like viral. And like understanding what viral was like at the time it was like cats being dumb and like family fails. And that was what was going quote unquote viral at the time. And then growing up with people making careers out of YouTube, like having YouTubers, having subscribers. I I never had a YouTube channel. I'm just putting that out there, but I had people I subscribed to. Like it was television. My sister and I were like, it's Friday. So-and-so dropped a video. So we're going to like, make a snack and watch it. And I mean, I learned how to make, do my own makeup from YouTube. I learned all kinds of things from just watching that as a platform. You have someone like Hank Green who essentially created what is YouTube now. And it's, it's very interesting to think about. And it was a very cool thing to grow up with, but I'm, I can tell that I'm on this group or we are in this group where all of that was happening, but we didn't, like, we know what it was before that. And we know what it is with that now. And there is now these kids, and I see it with my little cousin, who's 11 years old, where that's all they know. Like, they grew up with all of this already, like, in the world. So now they are 10 and 11, and they are already immersed in this culture that didn't exist until a lot of us were in middle school, high school. That's just a fascinating thing for me. My relationship with it is I had to do a lot of distancing from it just because I was a victim like many other people of comparing myself. You forget that social media is just one version of a person. It's it's what they are allowing you to see. So for the longest time, and I, I mean like high school, even college, it was a lot of comparison. It was a lot of, oh, if I'm not doing this, uh, if I don't look like this, 
forget it. If I'm not doing this, forget it. And then I kind of had to change my mindset and be like, these are businesses. And maybe they started out as these social things where you could see what you were doing, see what your friends were doing. But then you, I ended up being in like therapy and realizing I have like all this like depression from watching these people live their lives that, and they are also sad, but we're not having these conversations because we're just taking things at face value. And it was like in that realization later in college, I was like, okay, then we need to rethink the way we handle these things. Cause I can't, cause a lot of, especially as performers, you can't just fly off the face of the earth because someone needs to be able to see you and know what you can do. And it was just deciding to switch all of these things into marketing and not personal. Are there ways in which social media, including YouTube, but also looking at other people's Instagrams or looking at other social media that similar to the way you ingest music and are able to draw direct lines between that and what you create, do you also draw creative inspiration from those platforms or do you see them kind of like you said as these business tools that you can keep a separate relationship with and that that's that's kind of where you leave it? Yes. So I would say creatively, it's one of those things where I I couldn't have guessed it would have influenced me this way, but it did because I, here I am writing music. But what's funny is the first thing that came to mind was you miss Darren Chris. <laughs> Very, very Potter musical. Yeah. Yes. I literally was in middle school quoting this musical at the back of my hand, all three of them. I, I we, we would like wait for them to release the next one. Uh, it, I mean, and then, you know, Darren went on to do Glee and all the good stuff. But I, I just I distinctly remember seeing these musical theater fans and students just be like, we're going to make a thing and we're going to put it on YouTube. We, we expect nothing of it. And then turning into to me, household names. Like there are people I have seen at City Center on Broadway and I'm like, I know you from a very part of school. And I, sorry, that's all you're going to be in my eyes. <laughs> I think about the impact of just watching that as a group of musical theater middle schoolers at a performing arts high school. We started writing shows. I just remember the impact that had. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people like Kurt Hugo Schneider, who would do like arrangements. I remember watching those. And then I would, I would literally be at church making up new harmonies, or I would be like looking at songs and I can't, I, at the time I could not write sheet music. So there's, there's, there are papers somewhere in my house where it's just like me trying to notate what I think a pop song that was on the radio should sound like all because I watched this one guy do it because he wasn't at the time I didn't know what the job was but he was an arranger he was a vocal arranger he was an orchestrator so yeah there are certainly things that inspired me at a young age and I I can't imagine that not then carrying on into my later years and now and it's brought you to this point right where now you are a creator professionally right you do this as a living which is a really impressive thing to say and I'd love to know When you get to this point where the passion you have becomes your product, did that change or has it changed your relationship or changed your passion for the things you do? That's a really good question. I had the privilege of working with uh, Krista Rodriguez as a director when I was a senior in high school. And she said something similar where she said, it's very different when you do musical theater for fun 
than when you do musical theater as you're living and it's paying your rent and it's doing all this stuff. And I remember being 18, 17, 18. And I was like, that won't happen because I love the art so much. I love it. Yes, I should have listened to Krista because it's it's very different. And I think about first what comes to mind is a performer. And as a performer, because I joined the professional world in 2019, and then we shut down. So I I had, I mean, I was very blessed to be working all of 2019, but I I don't know how much of the professional world I got a taste of, because I don't think I got to be so burned out and um, seasoned as my, as other people that I've talked with and I'm friends with and who work in the industry a lot longer than I have. But there was, an, there is an element of being a brown woman in musical theater has its uh, challenges, has its, has its challenges. And it's, it gets very tiring having to face them head on again and again and again. My, my time at West Side Story in Japan was amazing, but there were, there were some things that had come up. There were a lot, there were a few issues and I had to sit with myself and be like, assuming I'll be doing West Side Stories and chorus lines and in the Heights, you know, for my career for a while, I kind of had to sit with myself and be like, is that something I want to face? I don't know. That's kind of a, that's kind of a hard ask to be constantly having to battle these colorism questions and these um, sometimes like machismo um, personalities and all of these things. And I actually think having the other parts of me, the writing, the behind the table, whether that's a directing associate or a choreography assistant, I think that has helped me solidify that there is longevity in this industry because again, I, I only had a year in the world per se, but I feel like I may have been burned out faster. And I think now that I can have an experience and be like, okay, maybe I walk away from performing for this moment and I go take on this job. And then I'm behind the table for a few jobs. And then I'm like, I now feel like I need to be on stage again. I can like, that's what it is. I can constantly replenish like my passion for it because I can step away from it while doing something still creatively fulfilling and then be like, my body cannot wait to be back on stage. So now is the time to go put myself physically back. Not to sound cheesy like a chorus line, but like go put myself on the line. Like I now have that passion rebuilt up because I've been doing something that still fulfills me, but I've been watching these performers. Now I'm like, great this is great. I want to do that now. So let me go do that. And then sometimes when I'm performing and it's like, I need a break that is whether that's physically on my body or whether that's, I just need to not be on stage right now. I can like put on a different hat and be like, who needs some music assistant? Who needs, who needs some choreography? Who's doing a new work and needs an associate with a fresh pair of eyes because of the way I am going into this professional world and the way I'm wearing my hats, I can replenish my passion for it. And then maybe one day it doesn't replenish and I don't go on stage or I stop writing music. I, I don't know, but the pandemic has taught me not to plan out anything too far in advance. And I've yet to be disappointed by that. I hope for you a passion-filled career and chances to keep replenishing that. That's awesome. To wrap it up on something hopefully fun, going back to sort of content and the things that you watch, because you've mentioned so many, which I love. What would be something that you enjoy watching that 
you could either think of it as a guilty pleasure or something that people would be surprised to know that something that you enjoy and something you kind of like to take in. First thing that comes to mind is right now my friend and I, via our like Zoom dates, we watched Star Trek, the original series. And I at first tried to watch it by myself many years ago. And I was like, this is too dated. This is too, this is too, um, I don't know. I just like couldn't connect to it. And then my friend who is very obsessed had me try again. And yeah, I'm obsessed. It is one, a very good sign of how far television has come. It is revolutionary on many levels. That's the part that I think really drew me in the second time around, because I was like, oh, we're talking about some hard topics. We are having our first interracial kiss on television history. This is very, very interesting. And then, of course, some things don't date very well at all. And you're like, okay, yikes, uh, this was the 60s. Um, <laughs> but I would say that one's surprising because I bring it up and people are like, the original series? And I'm like, correct. <laughs> and how about just some things you'd recommend people watch or take in things that either you found extremely inspiring yourself or stuff that you just think are the essential viewing that people should have? I know I've already admitted to being a big nerd, but I do say WandaVision. The performance that Elizabeth Olsen gives throughout the many decades that they touch on and the way that then transforms into the quote unquote Marvel movie, uh, Marvel movie genre, it's it's incredible storytelling. It's directed by the artistic director of the Geffen Playhouse. So it's a theatrical person directing a movie piece that is paying homage to decades of movie making. That in itself is amazing. So I would say WandaVision and the special that explains how WandaVision was made just because, and, and yes, it's, it's as, as a nerd, it's fantastic. It, it's, it makes you very excited for the next phase of the MCU, but as a, piece of art it's fantastic i then would say mike berbiglia's podcast uh working it out is incredible and has inspired me in ways that i wish i could tell him in person but it is essentially him inviting his friends whether that is ira glass or other comedians like bill Hader and conan o'brien and talking about process so they talk about well, first it's like they catch up and then they talk about questions that jot memories and things that inspire them. And then it's this back and forth dialogue of them trying out jokes or material on each other and being like, that maybe that's not good. Or maybe if you change the beginning with this beginning and all this stuff. And for me, as someone who was so scared to share their work, it made me realize that no matter what level you're on, that is an integral part of the process and getting to hear him who's a hero of mine and other people who I admire do that process just made me feel that much more comfortable going to my friends my peers my professors and being like here is my work I am now ready to receive any critique or or any suggestion or any other point of view on something that has come from my brain and my heart so WandaVision 
Microbilia is a new one, and maybe that's all I have for now. You know what? Those are I, I have not heard the Microbiglia podcast, so I love his stuff. I will definitely check that out. Rebecca, thank you so much. You gave me so much of your time, and I really love everything you gave us about what your creative process is and how you uh, manage all that stuff, all those 70 million different hats you have switching back and forth all the time. So thank you so much. I'm so glad that we got to hear all those thoughts, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Rebecca for her time and her thoughts, and if you found it as interesting and engaging listening to her as I did talking with her, please check out Rebecca's work. There are links in the show notes to her personal website, as well as to the cast album of Breathe, and to those locations where you can either license or read the libretto and hear the songs. If this was one of the first episodes you've heard, thank you for giving it a listen. And if you want to check out previous interviews, you can find the rest of them at our website, which is creativeconsumptionpodcast.com, or on all podcast apps like Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening right now. And if you've been listening to a few episodes and enjoyed what you've heard, you can always drop us a note on the website or share a review on those same podcast apps. We, we'd really love your feedback, and I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on the interviews and on those ideas that are being talked about in these conversations. So with that, thank you all again for tuning in. Stay safe and be well.